For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Thursday midday, and it's been two weeks since my operation, so I think I'm a little bit better. Really not totally up to myself yet, but I'm built in such a way that since I promised I would do the podcast that I committed to, the Mendelssohn part and all the rest of it, so it's like hanging over my head, even though it's stupid. And I'm going to see if I can, I'm going to make an attempt anyway, see if I can finish my uh, bio that I committed to for the Zorik family in Mexico, or into the Kiruv on, uh, on Moses Mendelssohn, if I can. Um... And maybe I'll do part of it. I don't know. I'll see. I'll see how I feel. Um, but otherwise, I'm just sitting here, and so it, it, it'll occupy the time. Uh, as I recall, I did the first half. So this is for Chaim Mazark and his family in Mexico, not only sponsoring but really pushed me into this, um, which they're entitled to do. It's my fault if I don't push back. And uh, here we go. Uh, when I left off last with our hero, if, if I recall correctly, I took it up to like the late 1760s when he had that business with Lavater after he published his famous book that put him on the front page of the New York Times, as we would say today, at the top of the charts, and gave him an international fame, I mean, in Europe, uh, which was unprecedented for a Jew, particularly Ikshomer Shabbos too. Guy went to shul every day. That's the unusual part about Mendelssohn that is uh, often uh, forgotten. Um, and it's an important part. So here's a guy who was around 40 years old. And remember, he died at 56. So the controversial part of his life is the last 15 or 16 years. Um, and I don't think I went into the whole debate with Lavater. But I'll just consider this like a separate Zach. Uh, but our hero, remember, had written a book that made him very famous, uh, Phaedo. This is uh, of extreme importance in a complex way for world history because when Mendelssohn published this book and it became a bestseller, it's the first time a Jew... Uh, becomes a contributor to Western European uh, culture and civilization. That's the beginning of a tidal wave of that stuff with all kind of complicated uh, consequences, which I'm sure the guy had never dreamed about. What I mean by that is that until it's the 1750s or 60s, uh, when you talk about European culture, it has nothing Jewish in it. All the writers and all the thinkers and all the painters and all the, you know, uh, playwrights and philosophers, all going. That's what European culture <clears throat> is or was. The Jews, if they, that's how it was throughout history. The Jews, if they're interested in outside culture, it was an outside culture. So let's say you're one of those people like in the Maimonidean times, that you're interested in Greek philosophy. All right, so Aristotle was a guy. 
uh, Avicenna and, and Averroes were Goyim. Um, you know, that's what world uh, culture was. Maybe Maimonides, in a highly exceptional way, you know, some of his ideas got beyond him. But generally speaking, what you call uh, European Western culture, which is very rich, particularly after the Renaissance, uh, was all Christian. And the Jews lived there, but they weren't part of it. That is what what I always refer to as the cultural insularity that the Jews practiced. I'm not saying that Jews who lived in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 1700s never read anything written by the Christians, but it wasn't common. You know, there were a few here and there, like I say, the weirdos, as they call them, but that wasn't common. Most Jews uh, didn't do that. Um, and to a limited extent, you'd have the early Musculum who would translate certain things of European culture into Hebrew. That doesn't make it Jewish. And so later on, the Vilna son, you know, translated a, a book of French geography, you know. You know so that doesn't make it Jewish. Now, um, here you have a guy, Mendelssohn, who's writing something which is not Jewish. It's not anti-Jewish at all, but it's not Jewish. It's European, it's secular, and it gets accepted and admired in, in, in European uh, culture. That's uh, uh, the beginning of a trend. And over the next 250 years now, it's almost 275 years, 200 and whatever years, um, 250 years, this would grow. So that by the time you get to 1800s and 1900s, the Jews are, for better or worse, important and sometimes seminal contributors to European culture with all kinds of pluses and minuses. So, uh, if you're the Yeshiva should type guy today, typically, um, it, to the degree that you're a writer or contribute to culture, it would be Jewish culture. Guy writes a safer. You know, something like that. Or an article in a, in a, in a journal or something like that. Uh, that's for Jews. It's by Jews and for Jews. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing illegal about it. it has nothing to do with outside culture. Uh, now contrast that with a guy, let's say, for example, who's not from, who writes for the New York Times or the, the, the book reviews or writes books. These might take off and have gigantic influence on the general culture. That is exactly what happened in the generations after Mendelssohn. This is Latov, and it's Lara. Um, who are the great intellectual figures of Western culture in the 19th century? And people like Karl Marx and uh, Sigmund Freud, later Einstein, you know, things like that. Now, they're totally not from. As a matter of fact, if you're Marx, you're anti-Jewish. But uh, it doesn't matter. They're extremely powerful influences on culture. Are they Latov or Lara? That, my friends, is not push it at all. And it's one of the big problems we have with the culture wars today, because a lot of it is Lara. Uh, I would say. Uh, some of it's Lato, but a lot of it's Lara. And uh, the Jews, therefore, emerged not only as contributors of Western culture, which never happened before, I repeat, 
but as dominators of Western culture. And this has led to all kinds of reactions. So Mendelssohn is an important historical figure in the fact that he's a Jew who didn't convert, is now writing books that are read by Goyim. In addition to articles, the articles were more for the uh, scientific type community. I mean, the guy won a prize essay by the Royal Academy in Prussia in uh, the 1763 when he was in his 30s uh, on some philosophy topic. I forget what it was. Which means that he's a Jew, I repeat again, and he wears tefillin. You know, I mean, he's a Shabbos Shabbos, keeps has a Pesach Seder, and, uh, and, he, and he published an essay on some topic of essay, aesthetics, something like that. And he got the number one prize from the foremost um, Egghead Society. I mean, he beat Kant. You know, that's a famous story. Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, wrote an essay and, and Mendelssohn beat him. So, I mean, you know, this is really, really unusual. Uh, in this sense, Mendelssohn is not a muscle, by which I mean all the other muscle were like losers. They had no uh, education. They had to teach themselves, which he did also. But they perfected them. They, they, they never were able to perfect themselves the way he did in their limuri chol, so they could become outstanding participants and contributors to world culture, to European culture. Uh, at the most, they turned to Hebrew writers who wrote knockoffs of Western culture. So medicine is really unusual in this particular regard. Um, so the Maskim later on will hold him up to be the, the, the founder of Haskalah or something like that, but he's quite different. Especially besides the fact that he was a Shomer Shabbos, a Shomer Torah Mitzvah. So it's a very uh, complicated story. On the other hand, by the time we're talking about, when you get to the late 1760s, um, it's clear that he wasn't a regular type of Jew either. I mean, he, he, you know, he had a Seder in learning and all that, but he, you know, his, his, his wide range of interests is extremely unusual. And the question is, as it has been till today, can you successfully combine that with being a from Jew, bequeathing it to your kids? Maybe you can do it, possibly, but what kind of hushbowl does this have on your kids? Now, the story is, I don't think I said this last time, but a Protestant minister named Lavater uh, wrote a public letter, I won't go into details, you know, he, he wrote it at the beginning of a certain book, but it doesn't matter, in which he said, how come you Mendelssohn, who I met, are so intelligent, but you still want to be a from Jew? If you're so intelligent, you should want to be a Christian. Because Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, especially 18th century Protestant Christianity, is obviously the way for an intelligent human being. Uh, so that just goes to show you that the guy was so Christian that he couldn't see out of his Dalai any more than a from Jew could see out of his Dalai But since he published it, in, in a public letter, and he more or less said, there's a certain book that came out giving all the rational proofs for Christianity, so I'm challenging you, Mendelssohn, to either disprove them, slug them up, or else become a Christian. Uh, and he was so obtuse that he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Because I don't think he was a bad guy, he was just stupid, you know. And because uh, a lot of Christians, they, they, you know, they, they, they mean well in their way, but from the Jewish point of view, it certainly did not come across as something um, unhostile. So, 
this put a, like a, 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 a monkey on the back of Mendelssohn because, as I tried to explain last time, he walked very lightly. L-I-G-H-T-L-Y, lightly. And, you know, he knew he's in Germany, he's a very anti-Semitic country, and he knew that he himself had been managed to pull off some friendships with some different Goyim, and he was able, like I say, to establish a Barnes & Noble type of identity. But it's always delicate. It could always be overthrown by the fact that he's Jewish in a Christian country. And here a guy comes out publicly to say, either accept the proofs of Christianity and convert, or slug them up. Either way, you're going to mess up your, your, your existence. I always, Mendelssohn figured, you know, managed to stay out of the limelight and not talk about religion. Or more exactly, never talk about Christianity per se. Obviously, if I'm Jewish, I'm not a Christian. I never discussed that. And in polite company, I'm supposed to ask that to people. But this guy did. And it's very famous that it gave him uh, a nervous breakdown. Well, first, he summoned his strength. It gave him a lot of trouble. Maybe even a heart attack, if I remember correctly. Because he wasn't a fighting type of guy. You know, rock'em, sock'em, boatman, ock'em. And that sort of thing, and the hell with you, and all. He, he wasn't that type of person. And calling him out and saying, "What do you really think about Christianity?" It, it was very uncomfortable for him. But nevertheless, he wrote a, a, a famous reply, in which he said, "You know, I'm Jewish because I believe in Judaism. It's not because I'm forced." Because the other guy said, "Are your are the other Jews threatening you? We'll protect you." He says, it's "Not because they're threatening me. I happen to be Jewish, believe it or not, because I think Judaism is the correct religion." I, that's beyond the hasaga of an intelligent uh, uh, Protestant. He said, well, what can I do about that? You know, and uh, he said, listen, every religion has a certain amount of rational and not rational stuff in it. Every religion, which is true, and every religion has a certain amount of superstition in it, which is also true. Um, every from Jew knows there's certain elements of superstition, even in Judaism. The only thing is, each person defines for themselves, every group defines what is superstition? What's not superstition? You know, they'll say this is, uh, you know, vital to Judaism, but you know, potato cocoa is not vital to Judaism. Something like that. Uh, I'm serious. You know, there are some Hasidic groups, all those who give a great mysticism to potato cocoa. So I'm, I'm not being funny. Uh, and, it, and you know, think it's like that. Any religion that's been around for a long time is going to pick up all kind of stuff along the way. And there are Ikrim, and there are non Ikrim. You know. Isn't the Rambam the great crusader in his time against what he saw was tremendous, um, what he called superstition Judaism? Uh, doesn't arrive at say to the Rambam that these people are not mean him, they're just superstitious, you know, they don't know. So Mendelssohn says every religion has that, but Christianity has more Christianity has more baloney than Judaism. And uh, he, he didn't use those words because that would be very offensive. I'm just putting it down, I don't have the patience or the strength to go through the whole thing. But if you're ever interested, you can go online somewhere. I'm sure it must be Mendelssohn's reply to Lavater. It's well written. He was a good writer. And to put in the most simplistic terms for a podcast audience, I'd say that, look, you know, um, if you're from Jew, you have to believe in all the supernatural stuff of the Old Testament. Kriyas uh, Yamsuf, the Ten Plagues, the Mon, and so forth. Okay, fine. So a rational, intelligent from Jews, I guess, it's a little bit wild, but that's what a nace is, right? Uh, 
but there's a limited number of Nisim. So just because I believe that God split the Red Sea for the uh, Israelites doesn't mean that I think God split the Rio Grande, you know, for the Mexicans or something like that. You know, it's, a, it's like that. So you can be an intelligent and rational person and you have a certain minimum of uh, Nisim and miracles and supernatural stuff believe in the Old Testament. But if you're a Christian, in addition to all the supernatural stuff of the Old Testament, you're also to believe in all the supernatural stuff of the New Testament, which sounds really crazy. You know, the virgin birth, the trinity, all this other stuff. And again, you know, a Christian would say like this, I was raised this way, and even though I'm generally speaking a rational person, but there's certain a number of miracles out there, and being a from Christian, I believe, in the limited number of miracles that are in the New Testament. But the point is that if you put Judaism side by side with Christianity, Christianity has more uh, crazy stuff than Judaism has. Now, he didn't use those words. You know, he was too smart to use those words. But that's what it boiled down to. And, um, and he said, you know, nobody's crazy about everything in their religion. That's sort of the definition of being a member of a religion. Uh, I don't know a from Jew today who thinks everything's great in the state of Orthodox Judaism today. There's this problem and that problem and the other problem. But that's how it goes. Same thing with democracy. Raise your hand if you think America's perfect. You know, and no such thing like that. Uh, but overall, by and large, Judaism is 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 uh, less intolerant, he said, and is less um, non-rational. He doesn't say that Judaism's totally tolerant. And he didn't say Judaism does not contain non-rational elements, but less so than Christianity. And he published it, and the guy backed off. He said, I'm sorry to bother you. I didn't mean to give you Agmas Nefesh, and so on and so forth. But after it was all over, he had a nervous breakdown. And no question about it. And I remember, you know, he might, which you can understand, because he was a high-strung person. Uh, so he made it his business to publish the letter, but then he, he had like a collapse. So what was he, 40 years old? around and um, for the next 15 years of his life so I mean he proceeded on but this I would say led him to concentrate more on the Jewish community than the outside community this brush with the government which could have gotten him in big trouble um, because it was some kind of at least an indirect diss on Christianity but it never actually developed that way. I mean, he wasn't really criticized that that much for it. But I would say that this pushed him to spend more time devoting attention to Judaism and Jewish stuff. And therein lies the problem. Because then he moved out of the realm of being the type of Moscow who has a little bit of weirdism, but uses that to help the Jews clop it again. And instead started thinking about and pushing the idea that uh, Jewish life and Jewish chinuch should be reformed um, in in different ways. And, and that that became very controversial. That's how I would say it. So figure from around 1770 to his death in 1785, that's when all the controversial stuff really hit. Although um, it was known, even before that, that he is what you call a break the type of guy and a weirdo. That's what all the Muslim were. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, he's treif. But he he definitely wasn't the average type guy. You know what I mean? But now already in his younger years, in his, when he in his twenties, I would say, uh, he had already started to. So no, he wasn't even married yet 
So not only was he um, writing on uh, European philosophy and all that kind of business, but uh, he was already trying to uh, engage in what I would call an internal Haskalah, and that is to define Jewish culture more widely than it was at that time, which was only Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. So when he was like 25 or something like that, for a while he started a newspaper, it didn't go anywhere, called Hellas Musser, uh, or a magazine perhaps, I should say, to try to, you know, uh, argue in Hebrew, by the way, in Hebrew, that, you know, there should be a, a, more, a broader type of Jewish engagement with other aspects, you know, Dikduk and Tanakh and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, a certain amount of uh, philosophy and things of that nature. Kohelis Musser. Uh, it's, it reads very from, by the way, you know, in other words, to promote uh, Midos Tobis among people. He, I forget what exactly he did. He, he, I think, either wrote a translation or a, be, uh, or a commentary, maybe, on the Rambam's Milos Hohikoyon, you know, which is the Rambam's uh, famous book on, on uh, philosophy terms. Um, he wrote a commentary on Kohelis. These ain't normal yeshiva type things. Now, none of them, nothing what I said before is treif, but they ain't, you know, yeshiva things, which is why it's very famous that when he was, I guess, 31 or 32, when he was out in Shadukham, because he got married at 32, he came to Hamburg, and, and remember, he already had a job, 9 to 5, I explained that last time, and he was a balabas. I would even tell you that he was considered a respected balabas in Berlin, because since he had picked up all this Lumurichol, and, and I mean that in the sense of a nice writing style and things like this, so the community uh, always turned to him whenever they wanted something cloppy of the government, meaning this was the time, actually, the late 1750s and the early 1760s, which is, I'm doing just a bio in Mendelssohn, but at that time, Berlin was the middle of a storm called the Seven Years' War, when the king of Berlin, the king of Prussia, Frederick the Great, was fighting a whole coalition of countries against him, and they had one battle after another after another, and Berlin always looked like it was going to fall, and Frederick the Great became Frederick the Great because he kept beating all these battles. He lost a few, but Derek Hall, he won these brilliant military victories, and the Jewish community wanted to show how patriotic they were, but of course they can't read German or write a poem in honor of the king, or some victory, or something like that, and Mendelssohn would do it, and as a result, the Kehillah liked him, remember, he was an unmarried guy, but nevertheless, they liked him, and they gave him a patour from paying taxes, which was, in the old, old school, a way of giving covet. Um, you know, the Gemara says that Tom Chacham doesn't pay taxes. The Rambam has a different opinion, but that's, you know, uh, once upon a time, a Rav, a Dayan, didn't have to pay the Kehillah taxes, that's considered a sign of special favor. See, I mean, he, he was held in esteem by his community. I repeat, he went to shul every day, you know. So he was just an interesting type guy and all this sort of thing. Uh, but even in the middle of all this, uh, you know, the government was still very anti-Semitic. And then, then, then that's how it goes. <clears throat> now, um, when he recovered from his nervous breakdown, I would say, so, as I said, he started paying more attention to Jewish affairs, which was not good. 
And there's a couple of very famous episodes um, that are reflective of this, and this is what made him controversial. One of them is what you call Parshas Halonas Hames, uh, which had to do with the fact, that, and there's a very famous article by this, uh, I forget the guy's name, Moshe Samet, was a professor of Hebrew, he wrote a big, long Hebrew article, it's very, a very good one. Um, as you all know, in Judaism, typically speaking, you bury the guy right away. If you're in Shalom, you bury him in five minutes. My mother died, she was she was underground in ten minutes, you know. I mean, that's, that's how they... That's a famous thing. And in spite of that, in the 1700s, there started to be all these rumors, which historians eventually found to be all bogus, but at that time, they were taken very seriously that they found, like, scratch marks in the coffins, you know what I mean? So in other words, you buried the guy, he thought he's dead, and he wasn't dead. So it's like the cask of Monteado. They, uh... You know, you're burying a live person, which is very scary. You know, think of your bubby. You buried her, she was still alive. Oh, my goodness. And just leave it on the German imagination. And all kind of stories uh, picked up. And as a result, one of the many ideas of the Enlightenment in order to improve uh, practices through rational analysis, because that's what the Enlightenment movement was, so it applied to all areas of life, health, education, welfare, warfare, government, economics, this and the other. One of the areas is the funerals. How do you make funerals more rational? Make sure the guy's dead. What do you mean by that? Well, let's ask the following question. How did they know in those days that somebody's really dead? So even in Judaism, you know, you put a, a feather, a thing, see if he breathes, it blows. Well, what if they didn't do such a great job with the, with the feather or with the piece of glass or something like that? What if the guy didn't blow in it because he had a, a, a clogged up nose? You know, so you're burying a live person. This became one of the items in the Enlightenment movement in which they say like this, if somebody dies, you have to wait like two days, three days before you bury him. Because in the middle of it, the guy might pop up and wake up again, or the lady. Uh, okay, now the problem is that in Judaism, you talk a say, you ascertain that they're dead and then you bury them. Right away. And it's very famous that one of the German states, not Prussia, by the way, Mecklenburg uh, passed a law that the, that everybody, including the Jews, have to wait 72 hours before you bury the mace. And the Jewish community, um, which was a regular old-fashioned Yekesha community, you know, they were not educated people, anything like that. They were business people. And there were a few of them, and they lived under the Grand Duke. And they wanted to, they, they wanted to say this is against the Jewish religion. In other words, that law can apply for Goyim, but not for Jews continue to let the Jews have their autonomy when it comes to burial and let them bury the Jews right away. And the government thought that they're being enlightened and they said, no, the Jews are just the rabbis, old-fashioned idiots. And, you know, they want to keep up the old Jewish superstitions. And we're actually helping the Jews by insisting that you ha that you leave the body around for two, three days before you bury them. And the Jews were, like, freaking out over this. And because, you know, they take these things seriously... And I remember they wrote first to Jakob Emden. They wrote to the German government, to the Grand Duke of Mecklenburg. And he said, let me see an opinion by the rabbi will explain to us why um, we should make an exception for the Jews. And I remember, I recall, they first wrote to Jakob Emden, who was, this is 1772, I think, 
He died in 1776. So he was an old man. And Yaakov Emden, of course, could not write in German, not a good German. So he wrote in Hebrew and had it translated. And it was like a, a, a very poorly written sort of thing. Uh, in other words, that, writing for Gaisha governments was not his forte. Yaakov Emden is a great godall for Jews. And in his super, super duper schmooper Melitza type way of writing, you ever seen Melitza like Yaakov Emden. But the German government was not impressed. And then they went to, they wrote to Mendelssohn. They said, listen, you know Gaish, you know German, you write for us. And what Mendelssohn, this is very typical what I'm about to tell you. Mendelssohn wrote a letter to the government of Mecklenburg, of the German government of that state. And he explained to them why, according to Judaism, they should allow, they should continue the old way. And the German government listened to him because it's written so nicely and so reasonably and all the rest of it. So he made an exception for the Jews. Very nice. Very nice. But then Mineu Bey, if you ask Mendelssohn himself personally, you know, Klappi Pnim and not Klappi Chutz, he's like, yes, I'll tell you the truth. The German government makes a lot of sense to me. In other words, it, it's a logical thing. Uh, what exactly is the nature of the Isser of Halona Sames? And he went into the whole long thing. Uh, it's all in that article. You know, we went into the Mishnayas and the Gemaras about uh, the changes in the history, evolution of Jewish funeral practices. Because <laughs> you know and I know they used to have these ossuaries and Likudatsamos and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the way they bury people has gone through evolutions in Jewish history, just like everything has. And uh, it's, you know, it's recorded in the rabbinic literature. But like I said before, we don't have Yom Likud at Samos or anything of that nature uh, nowadays. Uh, so here's the thing. Listen closely. Say so he, I mean, he can't write this to the Germans in Mecklenburg because they're a bunch of Maratzim. They're from Yekis. They don't know nothing, you know. But he wrote to Yaakov Emden. Uh, which is interesting because this is 1772, so Abishitz was dead. He knew Jonas and Abishitz a little bit when he was in Hamburg in, on, on Shaduchim in 1761, which would make him in his early 30s. He met Jonas uh, and Abishitz, who was still the rabbi there. Abishitz died in 1763 or 4, something like that. And um, and I remember he went, he asked Abishitz if he would give him a smicha. Now, uh, I'm not 100% sure why he wanted that, but on the other hand, it would definitely help with Shaduchim. Uh, but on the other hand, Abishad's very politely, if you read the letters, Abishad's very, very polite, very derech covered. He said, you know, I don't give I don't give uh, smicha to um, to bachelors. And he said, well, what about a chover? Which is, you know, a little bit less. And he said, well, you're you're beyond the cover. You know, you're such a famous and, and big common chalk. This is what he wrote to me. So you know how to learn already. So you're beyond the cover. So you're in that funny zone. Now, historians have always debated to this day, did Jonas and Abschitz mean that? Or was, just, was he just being uh, diplomatic? In other words, was he afraid? I got enough trouble with Yaakov Emden and, and, and Shabtai Tzvi uh, uh, suspicions. Now I'm going to go and back, uh, you know, Mendelssohn, who might possibly turn out to be not from, that's one school of thought in the historians. Another one is, no, he meant it. So uh, he knew he understood. By the way, there's a great story. My father told me, I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> but I remember this as a kid, uh, that uh, Mendelssohn 
visited Hamburg, I think I remember when Pesach time, and he met Yenison Eibshitz, as one does, you know, when you go through the shul in the old days, everybody passed by and shake hands with the rabbi, wish him good yantif. And he introduced himself, uh, Moses Mendelssohn of Berlin, and Yenison Eibshitz said, oh, I heard of you, you're the, uh, you're the guy, who, you were Talmud of, uh, of Carbonada, and you're well known because you're a big Moscow member. Moscow was not a dirty word at that time. So he says, you know, you, you know a lot of, uh, of Chachmas and things like that. And the story is Mendelssohn said, yeah, I know you too, we understand ancients, are renowned that you're not just a Gamar, Gamar, Gamar guy, but you know all these other Chachmas. Have you ever seen the Aris Devash? You see, Eibshitz is always boasting about the fact that he's very learned in others, in, in Limuri Chol as well. How much is a separate question, but he does talk about that. And what I mean by that is he knew mathematics and science according to that time. Of course, he was also into alchemy, but whatever. And, uh, I mean, you understand, she was a genius, you know, he was a genius. So he knew a lot of stuff. And by the way, he also had a law degree. Uh, I don't know how, but he, he did have a law degree. So he wasn't your typical Godel at all. And, uh, and Mendel, so, and you understand, she just said, yeah, the more you know, the more it helps you in Torah, and this and that and the other. And Mendelssohn said, I'm so happy to hear from a God like you, you know, that Limudichol is, is valid, it's important, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, and, and, and he said, I want to, <laughs> he says, you know, the, because because you're such a person, I'm asking you a question I wouldn't ask somebody else. He said, yeah, sure, fire away. And Mendelssohn said like this, look, we know tomorrow is the seventh day of Pesach and it's going to be uh, Kriyas Yamsev. Yeah. And, you know, look, I'm a from Jew. If you tell me that he split the sea, sure, he split the sea. Yeah. But, you know, what do you do with all these Gemaras and Midrashim that say that there were 12 lanes for each shavit and uh what do you call it um out of each and there was like glass walls and out of the walls came out fruit so that the people walking by could eat fruit and things like this and stuff for the kitties you know what i'm talking about you know the midrashim and you know like in other words how are we how i i mean how are we supposed to understand that and the was just said like this he said you know you're right. That always bothered me too. And Mendelssohn said, "Really? I'm so validated. I'm so I feel great. It bothered you too." He said, "You know, um, I I feel great." And you understand? Just like this. Yeah, I know. What kind of bracha can you make on something that grows out of glass walls? You know, it's not. You can't exactly be eights. It's not yonik from the Adam and all the rest of it. <laughs> and Mendelssohn's like this. Oh yeah, sure. Okay, fine. You know, and they they moved on. Um, which is a famous story which reflects the old school versus the new school. But to get back to our tale, whew, let me catch my breath. Give it our tale. So Mendelssohn, after getting the German government in Mecklenburg to let the Jews off on the Halonis Hamas, he, he himself personally wrote to Yaakov Emden, because this is 10 years later, Abishas was dead. And he said, and he wrote them very respectfully and all this. I'm sure this is all online somewhere. You can probably find it all online. It used to be published 
in the one volume out of 50 volumes, something like that, of the collective writings of Mendelssohn. I used to have in the Hebrew college every year. It's all in German, but one volume was Hebrew. And he says, um, he says, I want to ask you a question. Why are we so hyper in the Halon of You know what I mean? And what about this Gemara and that Gemara? And Yaakov then blew him out of the water. He said, no, you're wrong. You're reading this wrong. You're reading that wrong. And so forth and so on. But this led to a correspondence between them. And Mendelssohn brought up a couple of kashas that he had in general in terms of Amuna, not questions about God or anything like that, as I recall, but specifically the Rambam Shita that a guy who keeps the Shev Mrs. B'nai Noach will nevertheless burn in hell unless... He keeps the Sheb Mitzvah Noach, but Tyras Sheb Mitzvah B'nei Noach. Now, let's say I was not Jewish. So I'm going to say like this. I'm going to keep the seven laws of Noach. Don't kill, don't steal, and so forth and so forth. Because Moshe Rabbeinu said, hear what I said? Moshe Rabbeinu said that somebody who's a Ben Noach is mechoyev to keep these laws as, as part of Judaism. Notice, Judaism not only legislates for Jews, but Judaism also legislates for people who are not Jewish. Now, for Jews, it imposes 613 mitzvahs. For the others, it only imposes seven mitzvahs. But nevertheless, the person who's not Jewish is saying, I'm keeping these laws because Judaism, you hear what I said? The Torah. Judaism requires me to keep these seven laws. If the, do- the person doesn't do it in that way, then uh, it's like he didn't do it. And he ain't lochel golem hava. So, um... That's a famous sheet of the Rambam. And, you know, at the end, in Hilchus Malachim or something like that. And, uh, and Mendelssohn is writing Yaakov Emily, he says, it makes no sense. Take somebody who's a nice person, and let's say he's an Inca, Aztec. He's in the South Sea Islands. He never heard of Moshe Rabbeinu. Never heard of Judaism. How could he? In the middle of Africa. How could he? And nevertheless, he's a nice person. Benam Lechavero, He's a moral person. So in point of actual fact, he, for whatever reason, keeps the Shev Mitzvah He doesn't kill, he doesn't steal. Let's say, for whatever reason, he believes in one God, you know, in his particular religious system, and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, he's not doesn't have adultery. You know, say so he lives a good life. He's a, he's, a, he's a kindly, nice person. How come that person should have a Chelik Olam Habo? Which is a philosophical question. And by the way, it's a good question. Right? Because it seems like God's not fair. I mean, that's the bottom line in all this. Where's the fairness in all this? And, uh, and Yaakov Emden blew him out of the water. He says, for, you know, first of all, the Rambam's right. Second of all, your kasha is no kasha. You shouldn't ask those questions. He says something like, you know, people suspect you anyway of being not from already. My advice is just shut your mouth. And so on and so forth. Now, this is a personal correspondence. And I want to say this. Mendelssohn didn't do anything wrong in this correspondence because suppose you and I, nowadays, had some kind of hashkafa problem with Judaism. Who doesn't? Uh, what's the right thing for a person to do? Is it just shut up and suppress these? Or go talk to a godel? Go talk to a godel. Suppose the guy had kashas and amuna or kashas in the Torah and all that, and he did. And I and suppose I told you this guy went to Eretz Yisrael five years ago and he went to talk to Khan Kanievsky. So I guess, well, that's the right address. Or Iron Lane Steinman. I mean, that's the right thing to do. Correct? That's the right thing to do. Now, it sounds like wrong with having 
Sveikos, the only thing is, you go to what you call Das Torah, so, or, you know, somebody like that, and you discuss it. Suppose somebody was a chassid. Let's say, for example, I'm just, again, I'm making this up. Let's say 50 years ago, you had a Lubavitcher who, for whatever reason, life presented him with questions in, in Amuna. Okay, it's not a problem. Go talk to Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's the right thing to do. Correct? So he didn't do anything wrong by saying, I have a problem with the Rambam's approach, all the rest of it. There, there's what to ding zakhon, you know? You could hear it, but you discuss it with a gadol. Now, again, unlike Habeshitz, Yagamem and Kedako kind of, you know, like, they blew him out of the water. If you read the correspondence, it's actually very interesting. Um, and didn't give him real answers, if I remember correctly, but probably because Yagamem and coming from a Kabbalah point of view, you know, seeing the, the radical difference between a, a yid and a non-yid or something like that. Um, and, he, you know, he gave whatever answer he gave. Um, I, I should really look it up. But I, I told you, I don't have the kayak to pick up a book. I'm not allowed by the doctors to pick up a book. So um, I'm not going to do that now. But there's nothing wrong with what he said. On the other hand, you already see that he was somebody who was, a, I won't say bucking the system, but he had problems with the normal from Hashkafa type uh, situation. You don't just swallow it whole. The ninth treif. I'm going to repeat the tenth time. He did the right thing. He had a kasha. He went to Yaakov, and I would say Yaakov him that at that time, seventeen seventies, was the Godel Hador, surviving Godel Hador in Germany. Who else do you talk to? Right, who else do you talk to? Uh, but that's already a sign, you know, that he had these issues, and in later later life, you know, he he clearly expressed. Um, problems with this approach to the Halonas Hames, even though today, 200 years later, 250 years later, I should say, we know that all these rumors about, you know, premature deaths were not true. Notice there's no law in America that I know of. They can't bury somebody for 72 hours, you know. But of course, it's also true nowadays they have other ways of ascertaining the death, the coroner and all the rest of it. But you, you, you know what I mean. You, you get what I'm saying. Um, so that was already in the 1770s. Now, in addition to that, and by the way, around the same time, he was elected to the Prussian Royal Academy of Science, which is the highest Madrega. That would have been an unbelievable Kedeshachem, but the King of Prussia, uh, you know, vetoed it. Frederick Gray said, I ain't having no Jews here, I don't care who they are. So it's just very interesting. And he became a partner in the community, so, which means he became a member of the board of directors. He was just a very interesting type guy. Um, I would, they're formed in his mind now um, through an unusual way. His big and, and became the most controversial project with which his name is associated, and that is his edition of the Chumash. Because he came up with the idea of publishing his own unique edition of the Chumash, which... Um, as we'll see, there's nothing specifically trafe about it, became incredibly controversial and made him hated by a lot of rabbis. It's, it's just an interesting story. But he was in the 1770s, um, in his 40s, and he was already a famous guy. And just as I told you before, um, he used his influence. Communities would write to him all the time, Jewish communities, to help us out with the local Geisha government over here, and he would do it. So he was considered a nice fella. 
um, Kloppy, the other Jews. But clearly, um, he has other ideas as far as cultural insularity. And I would <coughs> uh, say, I think I mentioned it last time, cultural insularity in both senses, external and internal. Externally, that he said, why is it such a big mitzvah to be so ignorant of any other language or what's going on out there in science and, on, and all the humanities? That's one thing. And cultural insularity in the internal sense, how come the only thing is gemar, gemar, gemar? There's no room for anything else. There's all this stuff out there too, which is Jewish. Judaism and Jewish culture is not simply gemar, gemar, gemar. That's where, you know, those are the two issues that he had issues with. And this is the beginning of the uh, controversial part of his career. Now, Mendelssohn had kids. I told you, he had t- 10 kids, of which four, I think, died and six survived. And so he had a tutor for Limuni Kodesh for his son, uh, who is a from guy, but also Shtikowiter of Shlomo Dubno, or of a Shlomo from Dubno in Poland, who was a Polish rabbi, but again, was one of these muscular types in the sense that he was interested in more than just Gamar, 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 although he was a Talmud Chacham and he knew the Vilna Gon and all that sort of thing. Uh, and he was supposed to teach his son Limude Kodesh. Uh, already Mendelssohn, being the type of guy that he was, wanted his son, uh, who I believe eventually was the only one who didn't convert, to actually, let, let me put it this way, he didn't want the son to learn the old-fashioned hater system, which is you just say re- endlessly repetition, even though you don't know what you're saying, which is how Mendelssohn came up and everybody else. You know, braces, braces, and on, fang, and on, fang, braces, and on, fang, fang, bara, bashaf, bashaf, braces, boy, alkim, the asham, eshmein, bara, you know, the 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 himmel and the undered. You say braces, braces, bara, bara. You know, it's just it's just endless repetition by rote. Now there is a uh, plus to that and a minus, but you know, modern educational theory is against the rote. Uh, although in yeshivas, that's what they try to encourage. And there is something to be said for road as well, if you can get the kids to do that. And they call it Chazara, but you can also understand, a guy like Mendelssohn, my kid's coming home from school, he doesn't know what he learned. And so him and this tutor already tried to devise ways of making the kids understand exactly the plain meaning of the psukum that they're learning. Bracious in the beginning, Bara, Kim, Kim created, the heavens and the earth, you know, that straightforward kind of way. Um, the the so the idea for simplicity, for directness, for pashib shot, uh, uh, you know, uh, less midrashim, straightforward shot. After shot comes the midrash, you know, but get it straight, as we would say today. This lay at the heart of what was going on in Mendelssohn's household. Remember, the guy got married at thirty-two, so only in his 40s now are his kids coming up, you know, you know what I mean, uh, to the age where they have tutors, where you know, where they're going to be uh, starting the learning. Now, um, as we shall see, none of his kids end up learning Gemara, went to Yeshiva, anything like that. And that's a big problem with him. But Chumash and things like that, yes. Um, so make, make a long story short, they started to think of an idea of publishing a new edition of the Chumash. 
and working it out. And the idea was to write an addition of Chumash, in which people, I would call it an R.E.A. Kaplan type Chumash. What do I mean when I say R.E.A. Kaplan type Chumash? Let's see what the words exactly mean. There's a belt of people that, you know, you can learn all your life, Chumash and Rosh, this, that, and the other. You don't know what the words mean. And maybe they learned it in Cheder in Europe or something like that. They can't say in English clearly what the words mean. There are a lot of Pesukim like that. Now, Vayidabar Hashem Moshe is not like that. But there are plenty of Pesukim that are like that. Okay? Um, and plenty of Pesukim that are like that. And that can lead to, especially the way the Hebrew language is. So just to get an what I call an Arya Kaplan type of plain, straightforward, uh, you know, translation. After you do that strain, plain, straightforward translation, then can come the other stuff. By all means. But to get straight, um, this became the goal. Now the problem is, you know, one of language. You and I today, I, I, I really cheated because I said Arya Kaplan. Arya Kaplan translated into good American English. He's an American, it's not British. And he wrote in the 70s, I think. And I think. And when he did Living Torah, you know, I mean, the, the Chumash, the Arya Kaplan Chumash, it's in straightforward American English. Um, and the idea is, uh, now the average intelligent person, if he wants to read Parsha Shmos of Ray Rabo and know what's flying, you read Ari Kaplan. Now, as you know, he also has notes at the bottom that give you different interpret, you know, uh, translations of it, which are very good. But at least get straight, you know, what happened in the Parsha, so you shouldn't end up like the kid coming home and having all kind of Parsha projects Friday night in the house, but you ask them what exactly happened, and they don't know. You see? Um, this was the mentality. The problem, of course, was that there was no R.E. Kaplan in the 18th century, and it never existed. Um, because the, the Jews spoke Yiddish, and the Torah is written in Hebrew. The Yiddish wasn't uniform. There are different forms of Yiddish. The Yekesha Yiddish, the Eastern European Yiddish. The Yiddish has all kinds of, you know, Gaisha words that are submished with it. Sometimes the Gaisha words are rendered correctly, sometimes not. Clarity in terms of language was never, I would say, a major part of the uh, of the Yiddish uh, culture in those days. It's just not what it was about. Now, on the other hand, Yiddish is very Jewish. Um, but if you have a different sensibility in which you want to understand everything in English, or in the 18th century in German, in clear, straight English, that's a different kind of sensibility. Um, this problem was among the Goyim also. And for Germans, and for the English, for better or worse, this was solved in the 15 and 1600s with the Luther Bible in German by Martin Luther and with the King James Bible in English. That's exactly why, they, in, in the 1600s, that's exactly why they came up with these Bibles. And there were other similar ones in other European cultures. So that the average guy out there would be able to understand the language of the Bible. In Christianity, it's a very complicated history because under the Catholics, the public wasn't supposed to read the Bible, only the priests. The Protestants was goofa about the fact that you want to release and open up to everybody. But in Judaism, we've never had a problem with that. We always want everybody, if possible, to read the Chumash, correct? But to read the Chumash into what language? Because nobody spoke Hebrew, certainly didn't speak Biblical Hebrew. So how exactly do you convey the Chumash? The Chumash, I repeat, which is so basic in a clear language that somebody can understand. Now, if you're a Yiddishist, you can make the argument, and you can make the argument that, you know, Yiddish is okay, and um, it has served uh, down the ages to convey 
you know, meaning. And you have things like Santorana and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you really do. And who says you can't convey the ideas in, in Yiddish? But if you're an R.E. Kaplan type guy, as they say before, I don't want to use the word art school because the art school doesn't do this exactly, but I'll use the word art school because for most people listening to the podcast, art school seems to denote to them clear English. Uh, well, I have a nurse coming here now, so I have to stop this for a minute. Okay, the nurse left. Um, where was I? I think we're talking about uh, I.A. Kaplanism. And uh, let me put it this way. It's always been an issue in Jewish history about getting good and straightforward translations of the Chumash and the Tanakh and all that sort of thing. And yet at the same time, as we all know, ever since the Septuagint, there's always been a reluctance to provide what you and I today would call an R.E. Kaplan or perhaps even an art scroll translation of um, of the Chumash, let alone, you know, uh, better English translation, quote-unquote, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, I don't know, let's... For argument's sake, let's say a Corinne or Robert Alter or something like that, you know. Uh, which is just interesting. I spoke about it a couple weeks ago in the context of the Septuagint. Now, in our case, you're talking about the 1700s in Ashkenazic Germany. This is the happy hunting ground of cultural insularity. And it was really felt, the general consensus was the Gaisha stuff is the Gaisha stuff, and the Jewish stuff is the, the Jewish stuff, and you shouldn't mix the two. Almost, almost in principle, even though there's no principle involved. And here comes our hero, and he says, "Listen, people want to know the plain meaning of the, the Tanakh. Uh, that's not the end. And I'm not saying the Gemara is not important. Or, I'm not even saying the Gemara is not more important. But first, let's get clear on the upshot, on the on the plain meaning of the words. To make a long story short, he undertook um, his famous project, uh, which was to translate the whole Chumash." from Hebrew to German, and it doesn't mean, you know, a colloquial German, but a fancy German. Um, after all, the idea being like this, this should be the Jewish counterpart to the uh, Luther Bible. All the German Protestants said, oh, the Luther, Martin Luther's translation Bible is Gewaldic, and that's where you see the Word of God. So here, at least a Jew, he said, won't have to do that. You'll have a Jewish, um, you know, think of that. Now, don't laugh at this. I've, I think I mentioned once if you go back far enough in American history to colonial times, the only translations you could get of the Bible were Christian ones. And so people would read the Old Testament, you know, with all the Christian stuff in there. Uh, the Old Testament, that was even with the, was the Christianity type translations, because translation is never really transparent, or at least often is not. And so um, he executed this translation of the Chumash. The five books into German. Later in life, he did a couple of the other books of the Tanakh. And in addition to that, he appended uh, his own Pirish. He and a couple other guys. The Shlomo Dubna, who was a firm guy, did, uh, he did, did they split braces between them. If I remember correctly, Mendelssohn did all of Shmos. Another guy, Naftali Weasel, did the Vayikra, and so forth and so on. And the idea being, you're going to publish an edition of Chumash, in which you'll have a clear English, or actually German, uh, translation in Hebrew letters. So in other words, the, the, uh, the, the, the translated words are in Hebrew characters. You know, so in Anfang, Anfang will be Aleph, you know, Nun, uh, Fe, Nun Gimel with Nakudas under it. You see what I'm saying? It's like that. It's Manukad. So 
the idea being you get a straightforward translation. Here comes the controversial parts. Uh, because I'll tell you right now, his peerish, contrary to popular belief, is not really, as far as I can tell, is not controversial. He doesn't say anything, Trave. I would furthermore say Mendelssohn was a Maimon. You get what I'm saying? He believes in the Bria Solom. He believes in the, you know, Ovos and the Mycenaeism and all that. I, you know, I, I, I want to make that clear. But on the other hand, there's a lot of places where you can give a more rationalistic interpretation, like you find among the Mepharshim, you can depend on him and his gang to always do a more rational. It's a big deal. So it's like a raw bug, like an Ibn Ezra, something like that, uh, a Rajbam. So what? Um, the thing is, uh, he didn't, he acted uh, unilaterally. That's the point I want to get across. It's the beginning of unilateralism as a, as a factor in modern Jewish culture. And when I say he acted unilaterally, what I mean is he didn't get Haskamas. Uh, so it's not like he took his idea around to different Rabbanim Gedolim and got them to sign on board, which is what Art Scroll did. Okay, Before they did that Gemara, and translating the Gemara is a very controversial business, look at the beginning of the Art Scroll. They went to everybody. Errol uh, Yashev, everybody. Now, I'm sure in order to get these Askamas, they had to agree to certain points. Okay, that's part of the idea of writing something in a consensus context, versus a non-consensus, but uni unilateralist context. That's a very important point I'm making. M Mendelssohn uh, figured, probably correctly, that the Rabbonim in general at that time, none of whom could speak German really, maybe Yonis and Amish, but you know, not really, um, would not approve of this project for a whole bunch of reasons. And it could even be that their reasons made sense from a certain point of view, but they didn't make sense from his point of view. And so what he did was he said, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, the heck with the consequences. Because he started to publish this in the late 1770s, early 1780s, without any Haskamas, so um, clearly he was kind of showing that you don't need a Haskama. So that itself was a shtickle chutzpah dick. And I would say in general that he had respect for rabbis in points A, but he did not have respect from rabbis in points B, which is a very common attitude among many people today. So you could have somebody who says, oh, he's a big lamb and all the rest of it, but I want to ask him, my hashkafa child, it's not that guy, or not that Rashid, or not that person, or he's not the type of person, I'm gonna, everybody's different, you know? Somebody would say, oh, he's the one I go to, and the other one would say, I would never go to him for this. I might go to him for a shayla and shayla's nashim, I might go to the guy for a shayla, and uh, you know what I mean? in uh, Hilchus, whatever, but I wouldn't go to him for a Shiloh about whether or not, you know, um, I should have the internet. Maybe you should. No, that I would ask someone else. <laughs> Isn't that how people are? Isn't that how people are? Now, um, that's certainly who he was. And uh, from the point of view of the Rabbonim in general, they, since this was done unilaterally, and there was no consultation whatsoever, and it's a straightforward translation into a proper German. So from their point of view, I would say speaking consensually, the consensus of the Rabbonim was is this a negative thing because as in any new innovation, including the art scroll, for, there's always going to be the aspect of metaheres atmeim, metamiset tahorim. That's, you know, like a part of the It's always the way it's going to be. So take, for example, a kid who's living in Germany and Berlin 
in the 1700s, whose family is already more acculturating. And uh, the kid wants to know, and, and for that particular kid, it's necessary to have a good German translation. Okay, I hear that. Meidach, there's the other kids who are doing just fine, and if they read it, it'll move them to the left. You get it? It'll take them out of cultural insularity, whereas they're enjoying culture, they're, they're flourishing within context of cultural insularity. So this you always have. Uh, what works for somebody in Baltimore might not, from person, might not necessarily be the okay for somebody uh, living in Sotmer. You understand? In other words, this guy's wife can drive a car and it's not that big of a deal. That guy's wife can't drive a car because if she did, it would be like a, a certain rebellion against the norms of that group. Something along those lines. So, um, this is what happened. Generally speaking, the Rabbanim already said the guy's, you know, always uh, break already. And, you know, he's always been into things besides more. It may be that he's a Shomer Shabbos. And it may be, even be that he's a safe he knows how to learn. But he wasn't, because of his proclivities, he wasn't a big god or anything like that in terms of learning. And... You know, he's very intelligent, but, you know, he didn't, he's not, he doesn't know shots. That's for sure. You know, like that. And his hashkafas are not ours. Meaning he doesn't see the dangers that we perceive this across the board for Klai Yisrael. Because uh, we're afraid that this will uh, unravel the cultural insularity, which is flourishing in many places. And we hold that you shouldn't do anything even to help those who are post-culturally insular for whom we admit that it would be a plus, but connected that is the vast Hamon Am for whom it would not be a plus. And so we are expressing what you call statesmanship or Das Torah. And we say, looking at the broader picture for Klal Yisrael in Europe in the 1770s, 1780s, it's not a good thing. You shouldn't do it. Um, now, his attitude was like this. If I had a kid, let's say, for example, I'm just making this up. If I had a kid in eighth grade and he had a bad Rebbe and I went to complain and they said like this, it may be that this Rebbe is not good for your kid, but for the overall class, it's good. And so for the Toelis of the Rabbim, your kid has to suffer. I'll tell you right now, if it was my kid, I'd say, heck with that. Take him out of the class. I don't, you know, your idea to Toelis, can you, you can go stuff it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to have my kid. Pun. Why not? If, if that's good for the Rabbim, so why should you be willing to suffer? You get what I'm saying? There's always, um, there's always the, the the two sides of it. So Mendelssohn was coming from the side that says, uh, you know, my kids and the ones I know in my community, they're going to benefit from this. You're telling me that even though you see they're going to benefit from it because they're not culturally insular anymore. They're living in Berlin. They're German. They're knowing already. So if they don't have a good, uh, attractive uh, you know, translation and explanation of the Chumash, they're going to not look at anything at all. You say, well, but what about the Rabbim? Uh, I'm right here right now. Uh, you get what I'm saying? I'm simplifying, but that's that's what I try to do in these talks. This was the tug of war. Now, uh, therefore, kind of all hell broke out, out but did not break out in, um, therefore, the late 1770s, early 1780s. When all of a sudden Mendelssohn became a tremendously controversial person as a result of all this, and 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 partially because of the following, listen closely. He was a smart cookie, and he came from the firm world. He knew the yeshiva world, as we would call it today. Thank you. Oh, 
I want to get some. All right. And he came from the Yeshiv world, and he knew how the politics works. And therefore, um, he knew, or he had informants that told him, this is all written up in the, that fat book about him by Altman, that he had informants that this rabbi here and that rabbi here is going to come out like with a harem against you or something like that. And um, and he was not the type of guy to say, I don't care, because he cared. But he was very clever in countering that um, in the following way. He didn't end run around them. And this is true even today. If you... Uh, hold on for a second. <coughs> yeah, I got interrupted. Uh, <coughs> so what I was saying was, suppose... I'm going to tell you what happened. Um, here's what Mendelssohn did. Suppose I told you that um, I wrote something, and as a result, uh, a certain rabbi in um, New York was going to come out and put me in Kherim. Let's just pretend that happened. <clears throat> but suppose I knew that this guy here, this rabbi here, is here illegally, and I say, or I get him to know, he said, you say something about me, I'm going to call the FBI and you. And you would get into trouble. You end up going to jail. Something like that. Well, the guy will back off. You get it? Suppose I could really do it. The guy guy back off. So, what happened? Really, he holds it should be in Kherim. But he's afraid of the consequences. You get it? So that's a funny thing. Because it's not like you convince the other people you're okay. You just use tricks and shticks to prevent it from happening. Another way of doing it, not the same thing, would be, suppose somebody's going to put a harem, and I happen to know his brother-in-law through my cousin. And I'm able to get to the brother-in-law and say, listen, tell him not to do it. And this guy, brother-in-law, has enough hashpah on this rabbi, Rosh Hashiva, that as a result of that, the harem does. You get what I'm saying? Each way, I like went like an end run around it. I used tricks and shticks to prevent the guy from coming out with what he would really like to say. That is kind of like what Mendelssohn did. So I remember a Falcone from Hamburg, the famous uh, Gotto, wanted to come out and Mamish put him literally in Kherim. But Hamburg was part of Denmark, and Mendelssohn made it his business that the king of Denmark should sign on somebody who subscribes to the new Chumash edition. Well, if the king of Denmark said it's kosher, the rabbi better keep his mouth shut, otherwise he'd get in big trouble. And so he couldn't come out with a Kherim. I remember there's something like that with the note of Yehuda, that, he, that there was some well-to-do guy in Prague, an influential guy, and he became part of it. And so the note of you had to back off. You get what I'm saying? You can't say what you want to say either because of the Gaisha government or some rich and powerful richie riches in your community and things of that nature. That's how he beat it. Now, the truth of the matter is, that's just a smart cookie. The guy who did that, I mean, this happens in our time also. There are people who, for whatever they do, might ordinarily... Uh, catch hell, and because they know how to play the game in the from world, in the yeshiva world, in the rabbinical world, they're able to get away with it. You know what I'm saying? They're able to get away with it. Um, that's how it goes. So he was clever enough to do that, but the result was a very complex reality because uh, the result of it was that really Pete did something that really ticked a lot of the rabbinim off in a serious way. And I'll say it again, overall they were correct in the sense that as this spread 
to the masses that were still culturally insular, it served to degrade the cultural insularity and eventually get rid of it without there being a real plan of how to come up with what you and I would today would call term Derek Harris. Because nobody was thinking in those terms. Not Mendelssohn or anybody else. And so he just figured once they'll be able to access wider culture, uh, the, the, that itself will be a, a, a better situation. And so the result that emerges in the late 1770s and 1780s becomes a lot more controversial as a result of of the publication of this uh, of this Chumash set. Okay? Uh, even though Be'etzem, it's not like the content was treif, and it's famous that in later generations, Rabbi Kivag and others actually used to use it. But at that time, in that place, which is the 1770s, 1780s, um, it was perceived as an egregious breach of cultural insularity in both senses of the term. And this helped make Mendelssohn a very controversial. Now, I took you up to um, this point, and I'm going to close it down for now uh, and, and, and save the third part for his last years, in which he became even more controversial. Um, uh, but I'm still a little tired now, so I'll just uh, close this down now. I signed up for two, but I guess I'll end up having to make this three eventually, and then we'll finish off Mendelssohn um, some other time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.